makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of His righteousness for His name's sake. And one of the ways in which He leads us is through His Word. And so let's return this morning to our ongoing, ongoing study through the book of 1 Peter. We're coming to 1 Peter chapter 2 this week in verse 4. I'll remind you that we spoke last week about the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Peter assumes that his readers had tasted the goodness of God. Remember we said that that word tasted is the idea of, of discern. They had discerned God's goodness through the blessed gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that way he says you have tasted that the Lord is good, right? You, you have tasted the goodness of God, haven't you? And, and we said last week that God's goodness is His kindness, His big-hearted benevolence, His, His well-disposed warmth toward His creatures. I was doing some more reading this week and found some other men who have talked about God's goodness. For instance, one man said, goodness is the eternal principle of God's nature which leads him to communicate his own life and blessedness to those who are like him in moral character. Tozer said, The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward man. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness And he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. You might ask, what is is really the metric? What is the the system of measurement for the goodness of God? And and if I were to condense it down, I would say the measurement, the system of, of, of measuring God's goodness is his faithfulness to his eternal plan of redemption. God's faithfulness to his eternal plan of redemption. Oh, but you say, you, do you know all that I've actually been experiencing? Do you know the suffering that I have found in my life? I can imagine those, those people that Peter, to whom Peter is writing there as they're scattered about through Asia Minor, kind of giving this kind of pushback to Peter. Do you know the suffering that I have found in my life, Peter? Have you listened to all those who are mocking me, who are scorning me? Do you know, Peter, that I have an unbelieving spouse, yet you tell me to taste the goodness of God? Do you know, have you seen my current hardships, Peter? Do you feel my present despair? Do you know, Peter, that my boss has been treating me unfairly? Do you understand that I am, in, I am under the, the rule of an increasingly totalitarian uh, rulership of a man who is mentally unstable? Do you know that, Peter? Are you aware that I have an incredibly powerful spiritual enemy who is constantly lurking like a roaring lion waiting to devour me? Do you know that, Peter? How is any of that good? You're asking me if I have or you're telling me that I have tasted the goodness of God? Yet all of these things are real. Just read the book of 1 Peter. And you will see a suffering bunch of scattered saints. 
The question is, how? How can I discern the goodness of God in a present evil age? How can I discern the goodness of God in a broken, sinful world that touches the core of my being? That's the question to which we come today. And let me tell you, before we get into this, I'll tell you what is not good. I'll tell you what is not good. What is not good would be to hold on to malice. You know, that general hatred, of uh, that, that general evil in your heart and in your mind. It is that general intent to do and think evil. Those expressions of self-centeredness and self-mindedness which hold you captive to the lust of your flesh. That's not good. That bitterness that you hold in your heart toward God or others, that's not good. That'll keep you in the throes of despair and agony all the days of your life. When you find malice in your life, no, that's not good. Recognize it. Repent of it. Renounce it. Replace it. What's not good is the deceit and hypocrisy and envy that you and I guard as if it's something that's precious to us. You know what I mean, don't you? I mean guarding it so as to not expose it for what it really is. Deceit. What is deceit? Deceit is the intention to get you or others to think something which is not true. And I'm trying to think very practically about this. Peter says we're to lay aside malice and we're to lay aside deceit. What is deceit? Well, listen. The devil... John 8, 44, is the father of lies, right? Deceit is essentially devil talk. The devil lies about God by calling his word into question. That is the primary way in which you and I experience deceit. Whenever we think and talk like the devil, that's when we see deceit. And that's not good. When we call God's word into question... That's not good. Lay aside malice, he says. Lay aside deceit. Hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is the great cover-up, right? It is the tendency that we have to dress up to be that which we really are not. For instance, hypocrisy is being confronted with the truth and yet somehow presenting ourselves to actually being in submission to the truth when we're really not. I can hear Peter's words on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Though all will fall away. What does Peter say? Yet I will never fall away. He's kind of dressing himself up to be something that he's really not. Hypocrisy is hearing the truth and then presenting all the reasons why that truth doesn't apply to you. Well, I know what God has said, but, you know, dot, dot, dot. Fill in the blank. There you dress up the situation to back up whatever you're thinking, whatever you're believing. I hear it all the time with Christians. We, you find that there's only salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you make up all the reasons why that can't apply to you. You, you say, well, I know that, but how can I know for sure? Well, I'll tell you how you know for sure. You take God's word on it. That's how. Yes, but, well, I'll tell you what. Friends, that's just a cleverly devised cover-up 
for the flesh to keep you in despair and agony. That's not good. You know what else is not good? Not just deceit and hypocrisy, but envy. That's not good. That's when you look at another and you see what they have done. You see what they have and and who they appear to be. And you don't just desire that for yourself, but you resent them for having it. You're discontented. That's what it is. Envy is discontent because someone else appears to have it all together or someone else appears to have what you believe is yours and should be yours. That's not good. You know, we have our grandson with us on occasion, Harvey, and and, uh, we'll be playing with something, maybe putting some Legos together and something breaks or something falls apart and he looks at me and goes, Pap, that not good. That not good, folks. Malice. It's not good. Deceit, not good. Hypocrisy, envy, not good. You know what else isn't good? Slander. That's making a statement about someone else that's, not, that's simply untrue. A statement that is actually intended to hurt their reputation. Maybe even making a statement about God that's not true and intended to mar his character. That's not good. And what does Peter say? Lay it aside. Lay aside what is not good. Recognize it, repent, renounce, replace. Lay those things aside as the expression of your desire for that which is truly and genuinely spiritually nourishing. Namely, what is that? The Word of God. You see, those things are what keep you from the Word. When I was looking at this earlier, I I thought, you know, Peter, I said this in our growth group last week. Verse 1, they they seem like B-list sins, don't they? They're not like the real sins. You know, murder, adultery, missing church. The real sins, you know? These are B-list sins, or are they? And what Peter says is that these are the things that actually deaden you to the goodness of God. And it is the goodness of God that is the motivating reality for us to put those things away, to put away malice and and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. But the question still remains. Joe, you spent all this time telling us what isn't good, what is good. How do I discern the goodness of God? And by God's grace, He gives it to us right here in the text of Scripture. And this morning, we're going to begin to make note of five truths which will help us to discern the goodness of God. When we begin to see and understand these five truths, what's going to happen for us is we're going to find ourselves motivated to grow. We're going to find ourselves more and more motivated for a spiritual nourishment that will help us to mature into the godly men and women that God has, has called us to be. When we, we've got to understand these five essential truths about God's goodness. What are they? Well, first is the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. He makes mention of that right there in verse 4. Secondly, he wants us to make note of our position in Jesus Christ right there at the beginning of verse 5. And then also in the middle of verse 5, he wants us to note our purity from Jesus Christ. 
So the person of Jesus Christ, our position in Jesus Christ, our purity from Jesus Christ, and then at the end of verse 5, he wants us to understand our purpose for Jesus Christ, and then we'll close out our time, verses 6 through 8, and we'll see our promise with Jesus Christ. Now, I'll confess to you that I already know we're not going to get anywhere near finished with this today. I want you to direct your attention with me to our text in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Let me read it for you. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we do not judge it. It judges us. Make it clear to us today. Make the book live. In Jesus' name. Amen. So five truths that we have to understand. If we're going to know what goodness is, when when he says, if we're going to discern the goodness of God, we, we've got to dis- we'll discern it by learning these five truths. First of all, the truth about the person of Christ. Just look with me at verse 4. As you come to Him, or literally coming to Him, just stop right there. Coming to who? As you come to who? Well, the rest of the text makes clear that we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ here. We're talking about the person of Jesus Christ. He, my friends, if I can just make this very summary statement, this succinct summary statement will be this. Jesus Christ is the supreme expression of the goodness of God. Jesus Christ is the supreme expression of the goodness of God. If you want to know the goodness of God, you must look at the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do this morning is try to take some time that remains and fully consider the person of Jesus Christ. What do I mean? I, I, I want to draw our attention to Jesus today. I, I want to turn our eyes to Jesus. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, Peter loves to use analogies, and he's going to do that throughout this text today and really throughout the remainder, remaining point of, cha- of 1 Peter and even into 2 Peter. And he uses an analogy today to refer to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that analogy is the analogy of a stone. This is not something that's unusual. 
Jesus himself used the analogy of the stone when speaking of himself in Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 through 44. But Peter says here, it is a living stone. Now that word stone is just a regular common word for stone. It, in fact, it is, it, if it refers to anything, it refers to just a construction stone, a stone that was used in the process of building, just that kind of building stone. These stones weren't ne- were, were, were not necessarily, they were piled on top of one another. They weren't necessarily kept there by mortar, but rather they were chiseled and shaped so as to fit perfectly exactly where they needed to be in the purpose of the building. Now, we might ask a question, why would Peter use the analogy of a stone? Well, I think we all know why that would be. You remember that memorable occasion which Jesus said to Peter, on this rock, now he uses a different word, but on this rock, I will build my church. I think Peter learned something that day, and he shows what he learned here. He takes not only what Jesus said there in Matthew 16, But he traces that all the way back to the book of Isaiah, back to the Old Testament, and he understands that God had said that there is coming a stone, in fact, a chief cornerstone upon which God's assembly of people would be built. And Jesus said that to the religious leaders themselves in Matthew 21 and in Luke chapter 20. And that's what's on Peter's mind here as he refers to Jesus as this stone used in building. The, the New Testament often uses this stone language to refer to Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.4, referring to Old Testament Israel, all drank that same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock is Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And so he says, to consider Christ as you come to Him, Him, and then notice how he describes him, a living stone. As we think about the person of Christ this morning, I want you to think about four things about Christ. I want you to think, number one, of Christ resurrected. Christ resurrected. What I notice about this text here is he doesn't say, the living stone. But what he says is, as living stone. There's no definite article, there's no indefinite article, it's just living stone. And whenever that is used in the Greek language, it always calls attention to the quality that is being emphasized. In other words, the quality that is being emphasized here is the fact of this participle, and Peter loves participles, right? It is this living stone, the fact that this is a living stone. Stones have no life, right? We refer to something as being stone cold. We we say it's just lifeless, Stones don't live, but this stone lives. This stone lives. Now mark this. Peter is absolutely enthralled with this idea of life. In chapter 1, he talked about a living hope. In the end of chapter 1, he says, in the beginning of chapter 1, we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The end of chapter 1, he says, it is the living and abiding word of God through which we have been born again. There can be only one thing that Peter is thinking about in his mind when he refers to Christ not just as a stone, but as living stone. And that is the reality of the resurrection of Jesus 
Christ. This was it for Peter as it was for all of the apostles. Paul told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. It was the aged apostle John when he was suffering on the Isle of Patmos when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ and he said, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying what? Fear not, for I am the first and the last. And then he says what? The living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Brothers and sisters, Have you tasted the goodness of the Lord? You have tasted the goodness of the Lord. What could be more good than a living Christ to whom has been given the keys of death and Hades? What could be better than a living Christ as the one to unlock the door to release you from sin and death? Why is uh, a Christ living such a big deal? As I thought about that and as I wrote that down, I thought, now that's a dumb question. You know, we're taught in schools, there are no dumb questions, right? Well, this is a dumb question. Why is it such a big deal? Well, when really, there is, it's not a dumb question because I want you to think about this. Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. In other words, the resurrection of Christ is such a big deal because whenever you refer to the resurrection of Christ, you also must speak of his burial and death. His death and burial. You see, friends, this is where the grandest display of the goodness of God this side of creation is seen. It was to the cross that Jesus went for the joy that was set before Him. It was on the cross that the Lord Jesus Christ took the sin of all who would call on Him in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. It was at the cross that God the Father canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. He was buried. Did you know that that's part of the gospel message? In fact, the burial of Christ is of primary importance, according to the Apostle Paul. Would you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for just a moment? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you know this passage well, I know you do, but I just want to remind you of what he says here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostle says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried. Why is the burial so important? Because it tells us that Jesus really died. He was not a spirit being like some deceptive teachings would promote. He did not swoon and fake death like liberal theology would have us to believe. He died dead. Remember, some of you remember we had that that, uh, southern evangelist here a number of years ago. He said it's not just dead, it's double syllable dead. It's dead. He was dead. Right? 
He died and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so what he's talking about here, when he talks about Christ resurrected, he's talking about to, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. You want to know how to discern the goodness of God? Look at Christ resurrected. Look at him victorious with the keys of death and Hades in his hand. Praise the Lord. Not only Christ resurrected, but then you need to look at Christ respected. Christ respected. In this text, we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you go back there, 1 Peter chapter 1, we read, In the sight of God, chosen and precious. In the sight of God, he says, chosen and precious. Now, what is he doing here? He is giving us God's evaluation of this living stone. God's evaluation of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is God the Father's evaluation of him? This is, this is hearkening back to the prophecy given hundreds of years before this, hundreds of years even before the life of Jesus. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. We already know that the Lord Jesus Christ was enveloped with his father's house. You remember when he was 12 years old and his, his family had gone to Jerusalem and they were making their way back and they didn't know that he was still there. And when they came back, they found him seated in the temple talking to the religious leaders, being amazed and amazing them with his answers and his understanding. And when they confronted him, he said, don't you know that I must be in my father's house? I mean, it was at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the beginning of his ministry, when the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then again on the mountain of transfiguration, we hear the Father declaring from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. This living stone, my friends, is elect and esteemed. He is chosen and precious. This is the stone prepared by God and evaluated by Him as the very one Chosen, the choice stone of God. The chosen, we would read later, the chosen cornerstone. What is the cornerstone? It is the stone on which the entire building rests. It is that cornerstone that determines the, the, the perfect angle for the rest of the building. It is that stone that determines the stability for the rest of the building. And when God the Father, like a master builder, was looking for the exactly necessary stone on which to build his people, he looked to none other than Jesus Christ. He was highly esteemed by God, valued by God the Father, Precious to God the Father. You know the text. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now listen, it was not that God loved the world more than his son. But that statement expresses the infinity of God's love for the world. Because his love for the world is compared with his love for his son that knows no end. This is the measure of the greatness of the love of God for the world that he would give the most precious 
gift of all. You remember in Revelation chapter 5, don't you, when John had seen that great seven-sealed scroll in the hand, the right hand of, of the one sitting on the eternal throne of God in heaven. And he wept bitterly because there wasn't one found worthy to open that seven-sealed scroll, not in heaven, not on earth, and not under the earth. And John wept bitterly, and then somebody laid his hand on John's shoulder and said, Oh, John, don't weep, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. That's, he is chosen and precious, elect and esteemed. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How I want you to go out of this place today with the taste of goodness in your spiritual mouth this morning. The pleasant taste of God's goodness. And that taste would be the taste of the person of Jesus Christ. Christ resurrected and Christ respected. But there's a troubling phrase. There are many troubling phrases in 1 Peter chapter 2. But there's a troubling phrase in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. I kind of skipped over it as you come to him. And then I said, in the sight of God, chosen and precious, this living stone. But then there's that phrase, rejected by men. And so this morning, not only will we look at Christ resurrected and Christ respected, we also need to see Christ rejected. Christ rejected. I want to know... He says, rejected by men. I want to know who these men are and how they could reject the goodness of God. I want to continue the analogy for a moment. Imagine all of the workers in building this building are setting out to look for a cornerstone. The proper cornerstone prepared for the foundation of the building. But as they looked at this stone, they they quickly passed this stone over, this stone that was chosen and precious to the master builder. But when they evaluated, when the workers evaluated it, they rejected it. Now that word rejected there in verse 4, a living stone rejected, it has the connotation of rejecting after an evaluation. It's a word that means to test and then reject on the basis of that that test. It is to, to declare something useless having evaluated it. And that's exactly what the Jewish leaders re- did with Jesus. He, they rejected the Messiah, right? He was despicable to them, which is exactly what the prophet Isaiah said when he said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and what? rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. They rejected him. The Jewish nation largely rejected him. Keep your finger there in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look over quickly, if you will, at John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 37. John chapter 5, verses 37 through 40. And the Father, just Jesus talking, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Now look at this. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They refused, they rejected the living stone. One pastor said nothing was so unthinkable to them that Jesus could possibly be uh, n- nothing was so unthinkable to them than, that, than this, that Jesus could possibly be the cornerstone of God's kingdom. They looked at him as a foolish man, a poor man, a, a man scathed, uh, who scathed them with, their, with his denunciations. He was weak, he was humble, he went to a cross and died for it. He could not even overthrow the Romans. This man could not even establish Israel's freedom from bondage of the, of the invading army, and so they rejected him. And so who rejected Jesus? Well, the religious leaders of the Jews. But there's something interesting about the way Peter writes this. When he writes this rejected by, he doesn't say the men, or as if to say specific certain group of men. He just says rejected by men, as if to say rejected by mankind. There's no article here. Mankind in general rejects this one who is elected and esteemed by God. Men in general throughout history have rejected Christ. Most have seen in Him not the Savior that they want. Some want a Savior who will give them present political power. They want a Savior who will promise to give them victory over their earthly enemies. Some want a Savior who will deliver earthly wealth for them. They long for a Savior who will help them to win it big and cash it in. Others want a Savior who will give them inner peace and keep them from feeling bad about themselves. Yet when they look to Christ, they see what appear to be imperfections. So they reject Him. He's not the Savior they want. And so they set out to create a Savior of their own. And I want you to understand, a Savior of their own imagination who will achieve their hopes and their dreams. And dear friend, there is coming also a Savior like that one day. There is coming a Savior like that on the scene who will promise to fulfill all the hopes and dreams and all the wishes of men. He will even do signs and wonders so as to oppress men. And the world will flock to Him. They'll follow Him. And they'll follow Him all the way down the road to the lake of fire. Christ rejected. Let's move on quickly. And try to bring this to a close this morning. We've seen Christ resurrected and Christ respected and Christ rejected. But can we close our time looking at Christ received? Christ received. You see how this verse begins now, don't you? Let's end where it begins. As you come to Him. The verse begins in the original simply, coming to Him. Now, it's not an imperative. There's no commanding force to this as if he's saying, you come to him. Do it now. He's not saying that. He's saying, this is what you are doing. Peter just loves these participles. He's describing what has already happened and in fact is now happening to the readers. They are coming to him. Now, that word coming is often used in the Scripture to refer to a worshipful approach to God. A worshipful approach to God. It's used that way in the book of Hebrews, throughout the book of Hebrews, 4.16, 7.25, 10.1, on and on and on. 
It refers to drawing near to God in worship. That's the way that term is usually used in the New Testament. In this case, it's referring to one's approach to the Lord Jesus Christ. One who approaches Jesus worshipfully. One who approaches Jesus reverently. One who approaches Jesus humbly. I think about what the Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight. What does he say? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In John six, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. In John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But as Peter uses this term, he's not simply referring to a one time, or can I say it, the initial coming to Jesus, like, you would, like we would think that he's talking about coming to Jesus for salvation. One commentator said, the present participle does not refer to an individual's initial commitment to Christ for salvation, but listen, to the voluntary, repeated, or habitual coming of believers to Christ for sustenance and fellowship. Coming to Christ continually. As you come to Christ, as you have received and now do receive Christ, You discern the goodness of God. Coming to Christ is an honor. You see what he says in verse 7? This honor, this honor, the honor of being built on Christ as as, as the foundation, this honor, the honor of believing in Christ, this honor, the honor of coming to Christ, This is an honor. Why is it an honor? Because you cannot come to Christ unless it has been granted by the Father. Jesus said no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It is an honor to come to Jesus. And too many of us, dear friends, please listen to me. Too many of us think that the honor is all Christ's. That we come to Him As if Jesus is looking to us going, oh, I'm so happy that you have accepted me. When instead it ought to be us who are thrilled having been accepted by Jesus. It's an honor to receive Christ. Whenever you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, As the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find that goodness, that glorious taste of goodness. You will find that no matter the circumstances of your life, no matter the hardships you encounter, that the Lord is what? Good. 
Can you say today that Jesus is the one, just like Joel said in his testimony, that Jesus is the one prophesied in the Old Testament Scripture? Do you see all of those pictures and patterns and promises of the Messiah? And do you see that He is in fact the one? That is an honor. That's something that you should be grateful for. Like, me? A poor, blind wretch? Because when you see who Christ is, there's a whole history of men who did not receive Him. A whole history of men who rejected Him. And yet you received Him. And that did not come from you. You didn't merit that. That came from God. Bless the Lord. The goodness of God is tasted most definitively in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is discerned by approaching Christ worshipfully, reverently, humble. And if you have approached Christ and are approaching Christ in such a way, then you have tasted, you have discerned the goodness of God. But if you haven't, well, then there's a bitter taste in your mouth. You're angry because you disdain Christ. You reject Christ. You look to Him, and and when you, you hear the Gospel, you don't find the kind of Savior you want. You don't find the kind of Savior you have desired, and thus you reject Him. But for some of you, you have come and you are coming to Christ. Continually coming to Christ. Continually approaching Him in worship. And you will always find there the perfect stone on which to build your life no matter what storms you encounter. When I was a kid, Aunt Mary used to pick us up in the van and take us to church and 15 passenger van with 36 people in there and and she'd teach us to sing a song and the song went something like this. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down. I'm sorry, it's a long song. but The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the sand went splat, splat, whatever we could do. And then she taught us to sing about the the wise man. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. But the house on the rock stood firm. I imagine these people talking to Peter and say, how dare you tell me how good God is when I'm suffering so? 
How dare you tell me how good God is when I'm experiencing these tremendous storms. But Peter had learned something that they too needed to learn and that you and I need to learn. When your house is built on the rock, it doesn't matter what storm you're in. Have you come to Christ? Are you coming to Christ? Don't look for the goodness of God in other ways, in other places. The most definitive, the grandest display of the goodness of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, you you need to be coming to Him. You need to have come to Him for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may this be the description of our life. We just come to Him. We just come to Him. Every time we go to the Word, we're not just going to the Word, we're going to Christ, right? That's why we long for the pure spiritual milk because we long for Christ. I come to Christ by believing Him to be the only one appointed by God as the Redeemer and the coming King. I am coming to Christ by basing my life's dreams and my hopes on Him, fulfilling God's eternal plan for redemption. I I am day by day coming to Christ as I understand that that every problem and every success is meant to be an offering to Him. I am coming to Christ when I repentantly confess my sins to Him and trust that He remains the propitiation for my sins. Coming to Christ. That's how you discern God's goodness. And that's what will make you walk out of here today. No matter the storms you face, with a settled Smile in your heart because Christ. Have you come to Him? Are you coming to Him? So lay aside all malice. Lay aside all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and lay aside all slander. Yearning for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into the salvation that God has granted to you in Christ If you've tasted that God is gracious, if you've tasted that God is good, and you've tasted the goodness of God in the person of Christ. Well, there's still a lot more for us to glean from this text, and I hope that God will write His everlasting word in our hearts. Would you pray together with me? So thank you, Father, for Christ. We owe everything to you. We are glad recipients of mercy today. God, you are good and we love you. In Jesus' name and together all God's people said.